HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This is Sam Edwards, proud sponsor of Heritage Radio Network, surreyfarms.com. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes.
following program was sponsored by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Summertime is not the only time when barbecue is welcome. At S. Wallace Edwards and Sons, Sam Edwards has been working his magic on ribs, briskets, pit-cooked pulled pork, and much, much more. Add a few of their sides and the party is complete. Entertaining has never been so easy. To order, go to virginiatraditions.com. Woo! Woo! Uh, well, that is the lead track. Lead track off the new Snacky Tunes. Well, technically the second track. Right, after the intro. Uh, live, out tomorrow. Um, you can download it for free on our website, fotpnyc.com. Uh, and yeah, it'll be great. And we'll be sending out email blasts about it and everything. So yeah, we and got we're going to be celebrating things at the city winery, June 30th. Tickets yeah. on sale and also for the bill, Thrills VIP hour. Yeah, so go to citywinery.com or go to thrillers.com uh, to get your tickets for the barbecue. Eight chefs, three bands. We'll be DJing. Can't yeah. wait. Be awesome. But today, today, we have Michael H. Endelman. Is the H necessary? It it isn't, but it's fine. I, I is is that a is your name a common name that you need the middle initial? Um, it's it's not a common name actually. Yeah. When I researched you, do you actually are you the same squash player that I found on my? Uh, do you play squash? I am. I am that same very very mediocre squash player. Yeah. I play. We should play. Let's play. All right. Where do you play? City View. Nice, fancy. At, at well, I used to be a printing house, and then printing house got taken over by Equinox. Where do you play? Lincoln Center? Uh, no. New York, New York Sports Club, Cobble Hill. Oh, okay. Nice courts? No. No. Okay. Okay. We should save this for the squash hour. It's, it, I mean, yeah. It's in there. Yeah, it's in there. Uh, so, Michael, you are the features editor at Food & Wine Magazine. What yes. does that entail? What does that entail? Um, you know, I edit a lot of the things that are a little bit longer in the magazine. Uh, you know, I edit profiles and essays and some travel stories. Um, that's sort of my main beat. But I also, you know, just help top edit all the co- lots of copy that comes in through the magazine, regular columns, and help package things and, and just shape the magazine's content. How much are you reading a week? How much am I reading? Yeah. Oh, I read a lot. I mean, you know, I subscribe to basically every magaz- all the main magazines you could think of, newspapers. I'm a Twitter fiend, so I read a lot. And then, you know, in terms of what I read, in terms of actual stories, I, I don't know. I mean, a week like this week, we're shipping an issue. I'm, I'll be reading, I don't know, 10, 15 stories or something like that. Um, I mean, some are, some are long. Some are two, 3,000 words or 2,000 words. Some are little, just, you know, 10-word little blurbs. But it's just part of the job. It just adds up. It does add up. How much well, do you retain? I retain a lot. I think that's one reason um, the... the I'm good. The editing thing, magazines, is good for me because I, 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 I have a crazy memory for, for esoterica. I remember lots of sort of random stuff. Wait, for the, for the other magazines that you read, like they're obviously in other areas that are not food, yeah. what are you looking for to bring into your, uh, your editing style? I mean, when I read other magazines, I'm, you know, I'm kind of looking for a couple of things. I mean, this is, you know, I'm just one looking for writers. I want to know who the cool, interesting writers are, whether they're people I, you know, I know of, who I want to hear what they're up to, or new people. So you're always like looking for new writers. Want to give a shout out to a new writer that you've been enjoying? Um, or is that true? Well, the secret? problem is, yeah, the, like the story that I most read recently that I loved is is not a new writer, or he's a very famous writer. He's just amazing. Is David Gran, who writes for the New Yorker, who writes these crazy stories which take him like a year or a year, eighteen months to rehear to, to research and write. Let me ask you those things because uh, I was, you know, fan of the New Yorker growing up. When you read, when you get the New Yorker, and it's like a quarter of the New Yorker, it's a story, and obviously, like, how does that how does that writer do it? 
A and, and B, how do they live off of that? Because it's obviously like all consuming. That's that's all they did. Be, well, because I mean, magazines, Food and Wine does does do this that much, but a lot of magazines have just writers on sort of a contract. You know, you you get, you get paid a certain amount a month to write for them, and you get that your check every month. So you just live off that. But even if you only produce like one or two stories a year, yeah. Well, they. A lot of magazines pay per word, so you get paid, let's say, a, a fee, you 50,000 words a year, and so they just pay you out every month. And so as long as you have to meet that quota, like, you know. I got it. I mean, when I was at Rolling Stone, we, would, used, to, we used to count people's word counts to say, oh, have they met their quota yet? You have to, like, count that up. Let's talk about Rolling Stone. Yeah, let's, because, sure. let's, let's talk a little bit about your career before you got into the food world. Sure. Because, uh, like, a lot of the food guys we have on this show, they used to all be into music. Right. Yeah. Well, that no, was well. They're still into music. They used to work in music. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's how I originally got into to journalism magazines. Was I was just a, obsessed with music, and I started out writing at um, and interning at the Boston Phoenix, which is actually still exists. But it's oh, like, uh, oh, I'm a Boston. Used to go to school there. I know the Phoenix well. Right, so I used to, I, I started out as an intern at the Phoenix. You know, doing doing what, all, those, what was it? The the Rat was that the old? Spot? Yeah, the Rat is classic. The Phoenix, the Rascal, the Deli House. Yeah, in Kenmore Square. Oh, um, yeah. So the Phoenix was right around the corner from there. That's like, you know, legendary club where Mission of Burma got their start. All right. these great bands used to play. So I did that, and then I moved to New York and worked um, at a bunch of entertainment magazines, uh, Entertainment Weekly and Spin and Rolling Stone. And, you know, that's how I just originally got into journalism. I sort of, you know, was a music fan first and then fell in love with magazines and writing and editing and what what all magazines do. And... But then sort of, yeah, a year and a half ago, took kind of a left turn and, and went over to Food and Wine to become an editor. Did they, did you like see the job opening? I mean, it's, it's one of those things, like it's a big, I guess I, I take that back. Having done this show now for a number of years, it's not that big of a stretch of imagination. But do they just see like, he's a great editor, great writer. He obviously has a pedigree. And you just had to, pr- like, how did that transition happen? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I had to, pr- I had to prove my sort of food bona fides that I, I knew something, that I knew the difference between, you know, Thomas Keller and Daniel Balud and that I could, Come I, that I knew enough about cooking and how restaurants work and how recipes work, and enough about food to prove that I could just go in there. I mean, and I just basically did because food. This whole time that I was working in other magazines has just been my personal passion. It's what I do on the weekends. I, I I'll spend a, a whole day making a seafood paella. I'll like cook you know a ton of David Tannis recipes. Like you know I love cookbooks. So I just I used to work in kitchens and what uh, what kitchens did you work in? All bad catering kitchens in Boston. Like horrible really? horrible kosher caterers. Give, give us a horror story. You I don't mean, have to name anybody. No, I mean just I mean just it, the worst was just like. Um, the worst was the kosher caterer I worked for that was just like the food is reused like over and over again. It's like, oh, just put those put those egg, egg rolls back in and we'll heat them up for next week, next, next weekend. Oh. Just like that kind of stuff is just common. Oh. It was just it was it's really demeaning, depressing work. But I don't know. I, Would you I, see people be like, this food is amazing. And you're like, oh, it was made three weeks ago. Yeah. I don't know if anyone ever said this food is amazing. That didn't happen so much. <laughs> but, you know, that was that was how I sort of helped pay my bills when I was a struggling freelance writer, you know, in the late 90s, making five cents a word, writing live reviews for the Boston Phoenix. So favorite Boston show? Favorite Fair. Boston show? That you went to. Wow. Um, I remember seeing an early... A really early Eminem show, which was amazing before his album came out, and I was very into hip hop then, and it was really, it was just amazing and powerful, and I was like, who is this this person? Wow! Um, so that was that was that was one. That's one that really stands out. That's that's pretty good. That yeah. I, I would say it's pretty good. So 
Dick Henry on the side, you're writing on the side, and then wait, well, and you also said you worked at one notable place though. They weren't oh, all I worked. Bad. At, oh, I worked at when I was when I was growing up. I grew up in Michigan. I worked at this deli called Zingerman's, which is a really famous. Um, Jewish style deli, yeah, kind of. It's cool is that they're Jewish, but they also do like they import their own cheese and they do have amazing cheese program. They make their, they were really pioneers in sort of making everything from scratch, importing this great stuff from Italy and from France and from Spain that you couldn't get anywhere else. And you know, it, for a long time, there were not a lot of people who did this. And what was cool also about the menu was that they were like, okay, we're gonna make this idealized corned beef sandwich. We're gonna cure the corned beef ourselves. But then they also do like Italian style. Um, you know, subs, and they do, you know, the most amazing... They have a BLT menu of, like, 20 BLTs every summer. It's just Whoa. a great place. So I learned a lot more about sort of quality food and working there than I did in, in my catering days. Did your did your parents cook? My parents are good cooks, really good. My dad is, like, uh, he's a professor, and he's crazy organized, and so every Sunday he would, like, you know, map out, like, every single dinner of the week, like on a, on like a menu, and then like you know, and like write it all down. He's very, he's just, he's just very organized. So yeah. And I mean, were they pumped about the food and wine transfer? Yeah, I think they were. They were, they were, they were. Though, though my parents were sort of old hippies, so they appreciated the Rolling Stone, the Rolling Stone thing a lot. You know, they're lefties and old hippies, so I think they they actually still get Rolling Stone, which is sort of nice. They still subscribe even after I left. But yeah, they were very pumped about food and wine. And, they've they've been happy to live off you know some of the extra wine and scotch and, oh, yeah. and things I get. Um, all right, well, what, we're going to play another couple tracks off the comp um, that comes out tomorrow, and then we're going to talk about how big food mags are in today's current scene and the relevance of going to print versus being able to read something online. All right. That sound good? That sounds good. All right, you're listening to Snacky Tunes. Uh, we're your host, Greg and Darren Bresnitz.
we are in studio with the wonderful Michael Endelman talking about food and wine and magazines, and he just let us know about his short stint at Zingerman's Deli. Um, did you get to take home any of the uh, meats and cheeses? Did they give you like what was oh, staff yeah, like? I got, I got a lot of meats and cheeses. Did you work the slicer at all? Were you like, did you get to make sandwiches? Um, yeah, I, I can work a slicer. Yeah, I mean, if this if this magazine thing all dies, if digi- you know, if, if digital kills print, I can always go back to the deli. I think the three of us have all worked because I used to work at a place called Dakota Pizza, and they would make their own turkeys and then cool them and they'd have this like giant layer of fat around them, and I would slice it uh-huh. and just be covered in turkey fat. Yeah, congealed. the thing that the smelliest part was actually like the pickle barrels. I remember when when <laughs> you'd have to change out the pickle barrel when you got rid of all the pickles, and it was just there was just no way to do it without just getting covered in pickle juice. And actually, I worked I actually worked once in a pickle factory in Israel, and that is the absolute worst because you just end up soaked in brine. I mean, you're just like in you, in the skin. You're pickled. You're I pickled. mean, you're pick, just pickled. Um, can you eat pickles now? Has oh the, yeah, I still yeah. love pickles. Has they passed? So, um, before the, the show started, you were telling us how it's a, a pretty busy week for you because your September issue is getting kicked out the door, going to print. Right. Um, it is June. I believe a lot of things will probably happen between now and September. Yeah. So, let's talk about where print magazines um, kind of sit and juxtapose against food blogs and where it, what the core strengths are of a food magazine sure. versus something like an eater or grub Sure. Street. I mean, you know... I kind of just feel like they have entirely different goals um, um, for the most part. You know, something like Eater, say, is, is just trying to keep you up to date with all of this kind of gossip and news about, you know, national or, or low regional chefs, restaurants, what bars, what's going on in your city now, who said what, what's opening, what's closing, what's hot, what's not, all that. And they do an awesome job at that. Um, something that a food magazine does like Food & Wine is, is this more... It's it's trying to do lots of things. It's trying to inspire you to cook. It's trying to like tell, teach you about more in depth about cooking and how to cook. It's trying to teach you more long read profiles about chefs and winemakers. It's trying to like it's like a different experience. It's this you know reading a magazine is like this more luxurious experience where you sit down hopefully and you read it, you flip through it, you look at the photos. I mean, photos, food styling, all the recipe testing, all that stuff is a huge part of what we do. And so like hopefully you're 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 kind of like. You're, it's more immersive in that way, whereas something that's online is—it's just more quick hit, and it's trying to like—it's trying yeah. to like interest you in the moment. This is something hopefully that, you know, inspires you both visually and kind of you know through the words to to cook and to learn more about food and wine. And obviously with blogs, I don't even consider that setting time aside. I see it as something that happens, but when I sit down with a food and wine or any sort of magazine like that, it's dedicated time to read and to sort of intake that knowledge. Right. I mean, that, I mean, and I mean, I think you know. You know, magazines are not going to be ever as popular as they were, but this whole idea that just because their blogs, food blogs are popular, I mean, food magazines can't be popular is just crazy. We do really different things. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to tell you that looking at Eater is like a really great visual experience. I mean, they use pickup photos they get from wherever. I mean, do you, do you feel that food blogs are good for the food scene? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think generally I, I do. I think that, you know, they, I mean, I love, you know, in the same way that Gawker kind of changed the media landscape in some way, or even the Pitchfork did for music, music, music journalism, like it, I think it is sort of forcing people to try different things and to try to be more, 
to try to do try to create an experience that feels really unique and different. I mean, we think really hard about okay, like so this is a great story, like we have a great narrative here, but what's the what what's it going to look like? What's this kind of like Im- this aesthetic? What's this vibe that we're going to create with the photos and stuff that's going to really be just going to like really be beautiful and going to kind of get people excited. So we think a lot about trying to make this experience of reading a magazine really different than what people are experiencing you know, on their iPhone or on their computer at work. Is there a certain uh, calmness in the office then? Did you know, like, versus like, yeah, do you know, uh, but but you know what I'm saying? The way that you say it's like, we sit, we have the finest (laughs) scotch laid out in front of Norwegian locks and we go, no, yeah. I mean, I wish, I wish, I wish we could say that we sit down and we, we crack open, you know, verticals of DRC from Burgundy and sit and talk about the evolution of wine. But no, it's kind of crazy, just like any office is. But I do think, you know, you asked, like, so we're shipping September now, and clearly it's um, it's June. But, you know, you know, we don't actually, I mean, we're not a news magazine. You know, if, right. if um, you know, if if the Supreme Court strikes down Obamacare, like it doesn't really matter right. whether about food and wine. If, if you're if still some... going to want to tr- shave truffles onto the end of your dish, <laughs> exactly. But you guys, exactly. But you guys do have a blog component, right? I mean, that's to the, the brand. I, that's the idea. Is that you know we we the magazine serves one focus, one 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 you know th- one side of it, and then we have a very active website and blog and hopefully you know we have an email newsletter which you know is hitting people up with recipes every day or every right. week we do a blog which is more reactive to news and, and interviews and so that we are hitting you know hopefully you have this kind of 360 feeling where you're you're hitting people every day with stuff you're hitting people once a week and then you hit them once a month with this you know this great product this beautiful product and I mean I, I don't want to say talk numbers but across the all the mediums that you hit people with the email with the website, with that, have you seen a growth in readership? Oh, the- yeah. I mean, you know, our, our, our circulation, you know, the subscriptions of the numbers is going up. Um, and But then, you know, just the ama- amazing growth, you know, five, ten years ago, we did not have an email newsletter. Right. You know, we ha- now have one that reaches... I can't even say because I don't know. I have no idea. No, I would bad with, yeah. bad with the numbers. But, you know, we reach millions of people more through Facebook and, and Twitter and all that stuff. And, you know, I mean, it's... I don't know. It's a di- it's a different kind of thing. It's hard to say. You know, you don't make as much money from that stuff, but it's all part of this brand. And you know, then Food and Wine's also got a big foot in the food festival world. We do them in Aspen, and we do we license and do them with all kinds of people. I've heard nothing but good things about the Aspen. Aspen is and amazing. It just happened. Were you out there? I was not, uh, but I have been, and it's um, Aspen is amazing, and it's it is. What, what sets it apart from the other ones? I don't know. I haven't been. I mean, I've only been to some local things, so I can't really say. But they get they get amazed. They get really, really top quality people, you know, from Jacques Pepin to more Carlo from Roberta's was there last year. They get great, great people, and they have really high quality seminars. I mean, the people who go really are interested. Let's say in learning about wine, you can go to a Barolo seminar and do these tastings of Barolos with like a, like David Lynch, who's this great sommelier out in San Francisco, who not, really knows not, the, not that David Lynch, but. A different David Lynch, um, who really knows Italian wine, wrote a book on Italian wine, and so you can kind of get that experience. You're getting that's I think that's why people go, and that's what makes it awesome. Do you think that the different regions, like where it is, because it kind of maybe grabs the best of the east and the best of the west, and kind of puts them in the middle of the country? I mean, Aspen, yeah, Aspen is just kind of like you know that's where people who like to live the fine life just go to hang out and party. Is there a difference between those people and then East Coast and West Coast people? You mean in uh, in the, who go to Aspen? Yeah. Yeah, probably. I mean, it, it gets definitely a much more. I mean, 
the crowds at Aspen Food and Wine are really different than the crowd you're going to see at Smorgasburg or Brooklyn Flea. I right. mean, this or is, South Beach. Or South Beach. It's or South Beach. It's really different. Um, you know, I think sometimes in like the kind of Brooklyn bubble, we forget that like a lot of the people who are driving this kind of interest in food are not like you know are older and have you know people. That's the thing is that they're they're you know these are people in their forties and fifties who actually have a lot of money to spend on food and wine, and they're like part of what's like driving this whole. Oh no, it's it's not something that people should really forget. Like I think food is hip only in the last three to five years, but the people who really float the whole. Yeah, seen as bankers and whatnot. And yeah, I mean, and just you know, people who have that kind of you know money to spend and, and care about deeply about yeah. food, just you know, they're, but they don't they they don't like fit into the like kind of Brooklyn demo. Okay, um, we're gonna play another song. Yeah, and then we're gonna talk about um, what makes a good a great food and wine story, uh, and then um, best worst interviews in music and food, which I'm actually really curious about, and then uh, maybe some other you know. Hard-hitting questions. Hard-hitting questions. Hard-hitting questions, which is, you know, our total interview style. Um, you're listening to Snacky Tunes. Mm. So, Michael, yeah. what makes a great food and wine story? What makes a great food and wine story? Well, you know, we're always trying to be sort of at the, at the cutting edge. Of, so we're always trying to find stories that are new and haven't been told before. Um, you know, we're on end. We're also trying to always find people who, like, you know, or feel like they're just pushing forward in the world of food. We, 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 that's, like, one thing we're always driving to do is every month we'll give our readers something new that they haven't heard of that feels... Like it's a trend and it's going to be the next big thing. And so that's something that we're always really important with. And then there's that other visual element. We're just trying to find these stories that look cool, whether, you know, it's like a a dynamic chef or just a beautiful restaurant or a beautiful home or some great, you know, setting. And then, I mean, the last thing, which I think people talk about food magazines, they actually forget is like 
we we publish you know I don't know over thirty recipes a month, and that they're just they all work and they're great. Right. <laughs> like we have like a staff of like five to you know five six people who whose jobs it is to test recipes and like you'd be surprised when a chef of your favorite restaurant turns in a recipe like it's not always very good like it just it does something doesn't translate from the the restaurant kitchen to the home kitchen i work a lot in television it's the same thing it's just what might work at a big level for a restaurant yeah it just doesn't work it doesn't work i mean when you're cooking on a professional stove and you're cooking a hundred at a time sure but when you have to like do it for a family of four you know for six servings so you know, I feel. I mean, I love. I cook from our from the magazine all the time, and like, what's your uh, what's your favorite recipe you well, found from there? The, the new, the one I made most recently, which was this crazy project, was I Seamus Mullen of Tertulia yeah. has this great seafood paella, but you make it on a on a big Weber grill on a big like eighteen no inch cast pan, cast iron a big not a carbon steel pan like a paella pan, yeah. and. It was it was it was a lot. I mean, it was like you know, you boil a lobster, you shell it, then you make a lobster stock, and then you, you know that you boil down and infuse with saffron and a sofrito and all this stuff, and it was great. It was, I mean, that's an all day thing. I mean, you know, Sounds- it actually wasn't so bad. It was like you know, you got to you know, I have kids, so I'm I'm like I got crazy hyper organized. I, I think like you know, like you know, three days before I make my stock, two days before I make my sofrito. Like I, I got your all- dad is quietly nodding, being yes. like, yes, that's right, son. You know, like I read that Thomas Keller ad hoc book, which is an amazing. It's cookbook. amazing. So, and that one really instilled in me like it's all about you know, cooking is like half about like discipline, organization, and I'm not a great cooking anyways but i'm a good home cook and so i'm trying to like you know learn lessons from the master thomas like you know plan it all out clean your workspace keep everything like you know spick and span one of the favorite recipes i've ever got um, was thomas keller's uh, roast chicken yeah it's awesome which is just like i i only made it because i didn't believe him that it could be so simple and i went well done thomas. yes you yeah. just like put it in the oven close the door crank it up and don't touch yeah. it yeah and yeah just like leave it alone yeah leave it alone leave it alone um, so we were just talking during the break, um, that like how easy it is to kind of get a handle on chefs versus musicians. Um, and I know that you've interviewed both over the years. So like, yeah, yeah. let's start with, uh, what are some of like the best interviews you've had for food and for music? Okay. I, you know, I haven't done enough ton of food interviews to know, but I have done a lot. I did, you know, a dozen years in the kind of music journalism trenches. And, you know, I think I, I have a few worst interviews ever. Um, and some of them are they're musicians I love for the most part. They're just like they were bad. I mean, I think the absolute worst was Timbaland, and this was sort of I think pre Justin Timberlake when he was sort of more just hip hop producer. Mm-hmm. And I think that I, he was in the studio when I was talking to him, and I would ask a question, and then like I think he put the phone down for a while, and like I could hear him talking to people and like mixing tracks, and then he'd pick it up again and, go, and he'd say what, and then I'd ask a question and he would go like uh huh, and he would just sort of say uh huh. And then he would like put the phone down again, and I mean I think I got I got more than like four or five syllables over forty five minutes, and so that was the ab- that was the absolute worst interview I think I've ever had. What, what magazine was it for? That was for Entertainment Weekly, and I I don't even really remember the story. Right, I have no idea what story. It was unusual. What story? It was, yeah, it was. It un- seemed like you had a lot of questions. I had a lot of questions, and I really got never more than a few syllables. We asked him the questions. He was kind of he's he was kind of he's he's become a little more slick now, but you know like. In his early days, he was kind of infamous for the one-syllable answer. He got that media training. Yeah, I think he got he that got, media training. After, after, after that Timberlake album hit big, he, he got that media training. And yeah, now, someone was like, hey, man, you gotta, if you're going to be up there with Timbo. Yeah, you got you to gotta, you gotta answer some questions. So, so, so what's one of your best music ones? I mean, some of, sometimes some of, the, 
some of the best people are not like Wayne Coyne is classic. He's, I mean, he's everyone knows Wayne Coyne is just amazing interview. He'll answer any question. He'll also give you some crazy answer. He'll tell you all sorts of things you don't want to know about, but they're always entertaining. So Wayne Coyne is just sort of like, like, like what? I mean, he's just he's just kooky and and weird, and will talk about anything. And he'll tell you about all the drugs he he's taken, and he'll just he'll just he's down. He'll also like tell you all about the people he does he doesn't like. He's totally happy to piss on people, which no one really likes to do anymore. Really? So he he's, doesn't seem like the type of guy that piss on. People. He does. He he does. He's kind of he has he has. A I can see guys that got like got, got shit on and marginalized for a number of years. Do they have a big chip they on his shoulder? No, I don't think so. I just think no, he's a. Opin- I think he's just real and opinionated. But um, I actually loved him. I spent a weekend with Lil John in Miami, in South Beach, like living with him for a weekend, doing a, a story for him. This 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 is all aging me because these are all artists who are not popular anymore. But Lil John was big at one time. He had you know yeah that whole thing. Yeah. And and he was it was more just like he let me into his life and he didn't care. I was there all weekend with him, like literally like just living with him and following him around to the club and drinking out of his crunk chalice and all this insane stuff and going to eat pizza with him and Ludacris at four in the morning and he was just down with it and he just was opened up his life and he was very cool about it That's anything awesome. shocking there no i mean it was kind of like it was kind of like the cliche of a rapper in south beach that you expect <laughs> i mean he it was like no no punches were pulled <laughs> no no i mean i mean it was just i mean it was just exactly what you expect he, i mean he actually didn't um he actually didn't i think maybe the secret was that he didn't drink that much and party that hard in the end like he would go out to the club but he wasn't like he wasn't yeah, we have a term for that called show show party yeah he show was party. definitely a show party. i mean he had a man he had a bodyguard who carried his crunk chalice for him in a silver case so it was clearly a show right yeah yeah, yeah. but you know sometimes he would just drink out of a sippy cup yeah you know that's fine and then so let's let's food which i you okay. know we won't hold you to we'll say i mean this is where you started and then five years from now we'll be like Oh yeah, my God. I mean, you know, I haven't had any real horrible ones yet, so I can't really talk to that. You guys maybe know better than me. I mean, Tony Bourdain, of course, is great, but that's not a secret. Um, the guy I loved was um, Paul Bordelota, who mm-hmm. runs this amazing over. He's from he's from the Midwest, and he runs this amazing seafood restaurant in Vegas called uh, Bordelota. And it, he it's like a recreation of a Venetian seafood palace. He flies in, like, millions of dollars of fish from Italy every single day. What? And he's an amazing chef. And the, he, was, he was one of those guys who literally sat down at the table and was like, what do you want to know? And talked for, like, two hours. And, you know, literally, like, would show me his receipts for the night. And he's like, this is how, he was willing to open up his books financially, which very few people really want to do. And is maybe not really something I needed for a story. But he was, like, one of these guys who was just, like, so open and opinionated and would and just like wanted to talk and share his story and he yeah, i thought he was he's was awesome so as we kind of wrap this up I, I was wanted to wanted to know what advice you would like to give people who are kind of want to get into your world considering the fact yeah. that you made the transition it'd be one thing if you'd been like always been a food writer and you just kind of but you obviously built your own pedigree and then were able to have your own skills and to swap over. Like, what would you recommend people start to do that's actually valuable versus what might be perceived as valuable? Right. I mean, I think that I mean my advice. I think is like very old school. I mean, it's like the skills you build as a journalist they should be translatable to no matter what you do. So like learning how to like you know research and report and edit and write and interview. Like you could it could be. You know, it could be like Animal Collective or it could be like Mario Batali. Like those skills are kind of the same, you know, like you have to bring those like those journalistic skills to the table no matter what you do. Um, 
And so that's that's just basically it. Is like you know when you're young, just write as much as you possibly can, even if it doesn't pay. Like you have to just write, and then you have to learn. Like you have to find people who are willing to teach you like what you're doing wrong. Right. I mean, like that was the thing. Is I you know, I was you know when I was young, it was just like every every story was like torn apart and like this is not good. You need to do it again and doing it. It just it's. I mean, in this that way, writing is sort of like like cooking in a restaurant. It's it's a it's more of a craft than an art i mean at least in the beginning mm. like there's a craft to writing it's like you have to do it over and over and over again to learn how to do it you know the only way to do it to learn how to do an interview is like you just got to do like 100 of them or 200 of them and then you're like oh okay now i think you're like, I know. oh i get it i get the rhythm I get right the like you know you got you know i mean every time you sit down to an interview you're like thinking a million things at once you have your list of questions and then you got to think about the, how much time you have and then you have to listen to them but you also have to like and so you want to respond to them but you also have to get to all your questions i mean it's like it's this crazy art of learning how to do it and people who are great can kind of do all those things at once and there's just or just, have a twin brother or have a twin brother oh which is a secret yeah do you so, have a do you have a mentor shout out i mean i have a i've had a bunch of i've had i've been lucky i've had a bunch of mentors over the years i mean i had an original mentor at the boston phoenix um this guy matt asher who you know i was his intern and he was basically showed me how to how, how to get started um jason fine was my editor at rolling stone was great he's a, he's now at men's journal he's an awesome guy and great editor great so i learned a lot from those guys can I ask who's more obsessive, uh, movie buffs, music nerds, or food lovers? I, act, I mean, I actually think that um, I actually think music people are, are like are just are the most hardcore. Like I know I know Dylan nuts. I know people who are like you know obsessed with you know French psychedelic rock from the '60s. I mean, like those that kind of thing. Like esoteric. Like when you're like I feel like those people who are searching and searching and searching for these live tapes or I did a story years ago on people who go around you know the people who go around tape shows like jam band shows. I mean and they're ta- they they do this like every night of their life and sometimes it's like they just love taping shows and I, f- I felt like I hadn't met I haven't met that kind of obsession um, Do you think the they're all chasing this one moment that they're trying to lock in? I mean, that's the kind of irony of people who tape shows is that they're trying to chase this like great show, but in a weird way, they're so worried about their gear that they're not actually listening to the shows until later. Right. It's I always I actually found them very sad, um, but <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, I mean, I, are there? I mean, are, you know, there was that New York Times article a few years ago about these people who go to like Brighton Beach to find caviar or something like that and just it seemed like to suck all the fun out of dinner parties right uh, and that obsessive nature I feel that's sort of the same thing I, and then I feel it goes beyond actually enjoying what it is just bragging rights or something like that right I mean they're, they're, they're I mean you know I have to say though on the other hand people who are crazy about wine might take the cake because wine collectors are are I mean, not is the funny thing about wine. I mean, wine collectors have that added thing is that they're really stinking rich usually. So, like, they have the money to pursue and, these and they, insane dreams. But, I, but I would say that, like, but I would say over that, you don't even consume what you're chasing. It just sits somewhere. No, 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 no. Those those guys who buy the big wine, they do those things where they'll go out with like six other. Big I mean, guys. if you buy ten or they buy ten cases of it, and so they okay. put away eight and a half and drink, you know. There was that great story in uh, New York Magazine, I think, about the the wine guy from AC who was. Uh, creating fake bottles and things oh, like yeah, that. Oh yeah, Rudy Kanawian, I think yeah. it's called. Yeah, who's being he's who's in prison now. That's an amazing story. I mean, this guy it shows how easy it was, but people want to believe that they this want stuff, to believe. They want to believe that this I mean, is, and then after all that stuff, they want to believe that. And I love when they get this house and it was all it was just like a giant empty house. Yeah, it was like a counterfeit with, plant with just uh bottles and labels. It's a it's it's amazing. Yeah, but, I know I I still I just found like people who are obsessed with music and and obsessed with like there's just there's a there's a sort of like 
there's this intensity there where you're they're searching for some kind of experience or like some inner thing that somehow seems deeper than people who are just like I don't know on a barbecue tour of Alabama or something. Yeah, like if you go to the uh, good place that is popular because it's good, it's not as you know they'll go to some really terrible roadside shack, but because it was such a haul and destination, they go, right. oh, it's so good and so amazing. They're like, eh. I don't know. Yeah. It's bragging rights. It gets it, it gets a little tiresome after a while. Yeah. Um so but you know, I think we were talking like before that the the, the food music journalism crossover what's interesting is how accessible so what's what what's sort of fun about the food world now is that still in a lot of places chefs are super accessible. If you want to right. hear a story about that, yeah. they'll they'll let you they'll let you come into their kitchen, they'll let you like follow them around for a week. Where in, you know, music, that kind of thing, everyone has like a publicist and oh, it's very hard to try, try, try booking this show. I mean and like not for anything, but like for bands that are like very new, where just like, Hey, I'd like to do half an hour publicity, we'll give you three live songs, all that stuff. Like, eh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's. It's funny. There's that ambivalence yeah. about press. But a I young think. chef will be chef, like, people. Chefs want people to come yeah, to their restaurants. Please eat at my restaurant. They, come on Monday. Yeah, I will shake your hand. Yeah, they're excited. They're excited to talk to you. They're excited to share what you're doing. And so there's something uplifting and fun about that to just go to these people who want to share what they. They're like, I do this amazing thing. I want to share it with you. Not like, oh yeah, I guess I can give you a 10 minute phoner on Tuesday. Right. Uh, yeah. Can you call? Me? I'm going to be in Sydney, so can you call me? It'll be 3 a.m. your time. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, you know, I mean, I don't know who it is. I mean, Animal Collective, for instance, are like, like those guys hate doing interviews and they're miserable and like, you know, like they're the worst interview ever. And it's like, oh, it's so depressing to have to to try to do a story with someone who doesn't want to talk to you. No, but you have to because the public demands Cause it. You're right, because the public demands it. Um, final question. Yeah. Dream story. Dreams. Food. Okay. Dream food story? Yeah. Um, you can, and hmm. you can uh, do it for bragging rights don't, or don't feel that you... I mean, have... like, so this is supposed to be a, a story that I know exists and that I want to do? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I think it would be... You know what would be really cool is I would want to spend a... I want to, like, would want to kind of, like, try to get inside a chef, someone who's hyper-creative. Like a, like a Thomas Keller or a Grant Ackett's or something, and try to under really understand like through spending time with them in the kitchen, like how do you get inspired to create like this one dish, you know? And almost to the point, like to point of like real nerdy, like why is this little cube of like hibiscus jelly here and not here? Like why? How do you like how do you figure out like what? And, like this is this is not I don't know if this is a story that anyone wants to read, but I think it, I would be fascinated with sort of like how, how do you decide that like to do this exact thing and to put everything in this exact order and where does that all come from and to sort of like try to understand those layers of of meaning and understanding like you know thomas keller could tell you well you know when i worked at this restaurant in france he did this thing with mackerel which i always loved and so then when i see mackerel i think of this and i kind of like how the how those like years of experience and decades of experience kind of translate into creating something new um you know, cause like that, and that's that only happens at a real high level of chefdom. You know, most chefs yeah. are not are, are are don't do that sort of thing. But I, that, on that way, I would be that's that would be like an amazing thing I, to do. I would read that. No one read that. You could easily make that a series. Sure. With a great photo and then how it's deconstructed. But, but it's time. amazing how you could do that in a thousand words or ten thousand words. Yeah, I mean, you could go really deep. I mean, you, you could, could go really, really, really deep. I don't think ten thousand words. A thousand words would be good. <laughs> 20,000 words. <laughs> I don't want to read. I a whole <laughs> article of food and wine dedicated to one dish. Yes. That'd a actually whole, be kind of amazing. A single dish issue would be amazing. That a would, single dish that issue. That would actually be 
where you like where it's sourced and the people behind the that actually that's actually pretty amazing. Hey, maybe I'll take that back to the office. It's hey, pretty good. You're okay. welcome. I'll let you guys know. Yeah. Michael, well, I want to thank you for being on the show, guys. Thank you very much. Uh, this was awesome. You want to give us the nuts and bolts of people? Can people write you? Um, no, you can say I no. don't know. Foodawine.com. I'm, right? I'm on Twitter at Michael Endelman. That's good. And that's good I'm, I'm 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 an addict. So if you if you tweet at me. Then I will I will receive and okay. I will respond. Is that how it's just that. is that how it's just set up a squash game? Yeah. Well you also have my email. But, <laughs> I did but yes. He didn't just show up. Also, here. if you just if you are like a decent 3.0, 3.5 player, yeah, I'm down. I'm I'm around 3.0, 3.5. On a good day I'm a four oh. Okay. And I'm, if, I'm definitely not a four. And if I haven't it's the first weekend like after the weekend is always the Right. Also great. if there's anyone listening who's into squash, I'm really looking always looking for partners. Yeah, let's do this. Let's do this. That, I mean that could that could be someone's entry point. Yeah, they could. They could try. I mean, you know could, what? Actually, actually, I'm going to be opening this up too. Like, if you're a writer and you want to pitch me, tweet me. And and I'm all, like half a big part of my job is 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 working with freelance writers. I always I love working with new writers and new talent. And you know, of the nine of the pitches I get, you know, probably you know 98 percent of them don't work. But there's always like a few that do and that are interesting. And you know, and I think people also think that when you pitch uh, a magazine or an editor, it's like, oh, I'm pitching them this presented final product. But in reality, the story. All things always evolve, yeah. And so it's like one idea becomes another idea and evolves into something else. And like so, a, like a one dish issue, like a one dish issue. So please, if you have pitches, I'm I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm probably going to regret this, but um, please Maybe, pitch me. No, you, you, I, hey, you, you might regret it till you get that one article that you wouldn't have gotten any other way. And that's then, true. That's true. I mean, I, a lot of writers I work with are not. I mean, there's a writer I work with right now who just had, was a friend of someone who's an MFA guy and works at Christie's in the wine department, and he's an awesome writer. Amazing. Yeah. Hey, you never know. And that's a what's shorter than an elevator pitch than a tweet pitch? Nothing, right? Oh yeah, 140 yeah. characters. 140 characters. Pitch me 140 characters. But, but, but that would actually be that's actually kind of amazing. You know what? If you get any good ones, please send them to me. Yeah, I will. To, we'll, I we'll read will. them. We'll read them on air. Um, all right. Well, thank you all for listening. Um, just a reminder that Snacky Tunes Live comes out tomorrow. Woo-hoo. Free download. Um, go to fotpnyc.com. If you go tonight, it'll probably be up there because I've got to I've got to upload it. And then uh, don't forget about the City Winery Barbecue Blowout. Uh, you can get tickets at citywinery.com. Or thrillist.com for, thrillist. the, VIP for the VIP hour. hour. Eight chefs. Uh, Tyler Boring, David Burke, Garrett uh, Oliver, Big Gay Ice Cream Truck, and more. Plus uh, bands from Snacky Tunes, Rewards, Fletcher C. Johnson. And we're going to DJ. Mesh, and we're going to DJ. And so Alex Pasternak. Michael, thank you again for joining Guys, us. Guys, thanks so much. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. Carried on
about it, put it on. Never was it true, but it's you I fell into. Well, I talked about it. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.